Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Jessica Flack, resident professor at the Santa Fe Institute, where she's the director of the Collective Computations Group. A very cool quote on their website. We work on how nature collectively computes solutions to problems and how these computations are refined in evolutionary and learning time. We explore these ideas at all levels of biological organization, from societies of cells to animal societies to markets to machine-human hybrid societies. Yep, talking about us there. She's also the co-editor-in-chief of the Collective Intelligence Journal, which have you guys actually launched that yet? Are getting close, right? We're getting close. Yeah, we'll have a link to it. I uh, just went and checked and I couldn't find anything, so I assume they're getting close to the launching. They haven't quite yet. There'll be a link, as always, on the episode page at thatjimrutshow.com, so check it out, which I'm sure will be extremely interesting. We are accepting papers. We have the first issue should be published online in the next couple of months. Cool. This is Jessica's fourth appearance on the show on various topics. My personal favorite and one of my all-time favorite episodes is EP48, titled Jessica Flack on Complex Systems Dynamics. Today, we're going to talk about something that kind of falls into that realm, which we decided to call Nth Order Effects from the War in Ukraine. So let's start with what is N mean there in nth order effects? Well, let's see. So I think it's worth actually, before we introduce nth order effects or second order effects, backing up a little bit and, and um, going over some related concepts. Have at it. So the first one that I think we should put on the table is just a very simple concept of outlier. So an outlier is just a data point that differs, you can say somewhat significantly from other data points. And an outlier can be caused by measurement error or by having the wrong underlying distribution. So you think you have a normal distribution when you really actually have a heavy tail distribution or when the distribution's changed, or it can be the result of, of stochasticity, of chance. And so a second order effect, well, before we get to second order effect, there's one more concept we should introduce, and that's the concept of black swan. And so a black swan is an event where the magnitude of the events measured correctly, in other words, it's not due to measurement error. And Jim, you jump in here if you have like a different take on black swans, but is nonetheless outside our current expectations. So let me just go over that again. So a black swan's an event where you've measured its magnitude correctly, but it's it's outside, its size is outside our normal expectations or our current expectations. And a black swan differs, it's, it's sort of distinct from a white swan, which is common and expected. That's kind of where the term comes from. And you can turn a black swan into a white swan if you realize upon studying more carefully the event and the factors giving rise to it, that the probability of it occurring is actually within the expectations of the model that you've built. Yeah. Like you've seen 50, you've seen 50 white swans, haven't seen any black ones. You make the assumption there are no black ones. Once you've seen a thousand, you've seen a few and you realize they, they have a probability of one in 500. Yeah, that would be a classic example. That's right. In other words, you know, you might, you might have had, for example, the wrong underlying distribution or causal model for the uh, events you've been observing. Now, I think it's worth highlighting something. So, we, you know, I said at the start of this that a black swan is, uh, you know, an event that's sort of outside your current expectations, but where you've m- made no measurement error. But there's a second kind of measurement error I just want to, you know, reemphasize, and that's that you could have been assuming the wrong underlying distribution. And that's something we talk about on the show quite a bit, that... Many, many people who have some level of numeracy assume everything is Gaussian, when in reality, most social network phenomena are fat-tailed, sort of approximately power laws. And here's some of the most ridiculous things. that One I point out all the time is that during the 2008 financial crisis, some CEO of some financial service company that melted down said, I couldn't be held accountable for that. That was a 16 Sigma event. 
And I go, uh, no, it wasn't actually. A 16 Sigma event wouldn't have happened once in the history of the universe, right? Even assuming if every atom in the universe was a financial services company. And uh, rather, you were bit in the ass by a fat tail distribution that had about one in a hundred per year distribution. You idiot, right? So this is something we talk about fairly frequently, and it's very important. Yeah, I think, and your point too, that so it's very hard to show that a distribution with data is power law, unless you have a lot of data. So often we just say that it's heavy tailed. And it just means that, you know, there are some observations out in the tail that are completely expected, but much larger than the other observations, the bulk of observations that you have. Yeah. But there are a lot more of them than you'd expect in a Gaussian distribution, a normal distribution. Uh, that's the thing, you know. Yeah, is it power law? Yes, no, plus or minus, whatever. But it's a lot fatter than Gaussian. That's the takeaway. So you go from once in the universe, if you're unlucky, to once every hundred years. And there's an example of going from the Gaussian model to the fat-tailed way of looking at extreme social events. And then, of course, the other issue here is that the world isn't stationary. And distributions change, especially with feedback. And so a lot of times we're making assessments of outliers and we haven't realized that the distribution, the underlying distribution isn't the same any longer. Another way to say that is relate closely related is that we're all strategic actors, right? And this happens all the time. People try to extrapolate, assuming that there is no agentful reaction, right? So uh, in reality, of course, all the players, all the human players are agentful, agentic in one way or the other. And so we're in essentially a very, very complex game theory problem when we start to think about how does anything propagate out over this, this web of dependencies? Exactly. And now to come to second order effects, the way I think about second order effects is it's just, it's, it's an effect that depends on something else happening first, right? So it's, it's kind of like a, the result of a joint probability distribution. But it's important not to confuse a second order effect with a longer term first order effect. So I think this is a common mistake. We think that if something occurs in the future, it's de- that is necessarily downstream, but that might not be the case. Sometimes second order effects occur down the road, I think maybe often, but they can also be almost simultaneous with first order effects. That's just a a little important, um, you know, note. Let's let's ground that with an example. What would you call the surge in price of wheat right after the start of the war? I would call that a second order effect. I would too. So we're on the same page that it was a consequence of rather than an, an evolution of, right? Yes. And one that can be predicted. In the case of Ukraine, which is a large producer of wheat, everyone knew that in advance. Now, in terms of predictability, like the Ukraine example, second order effects are often predictable, even though they require first order effects to happen first. And that's just a consequence of there being strong causal relationships between the first and the second order effects, right? So if a first order effect is likely and its connection to a second order effect is strong, then the second order effect like wheat chain, you know, that should be predictable. Yeah. And there's an interesting, predictable, if you have, if you are focused on all the information. So yeah, we know that Ukraine is a big exporter of wheat. We also know Russia is a big exporter of wheat. What most people don't know is that Russia and Belarus between them are by far the largest exporters of fertilizer, right? And the war did not actually cut off their export capacity because they don't, they didn't use the Ukrainian ports to any significant degree for their exports. But the economic sanctions, which one might call a second order effect, produced a third order effect of restricting the export of particularly Belarusian fertilizers. And they happen to be the, uh, the export, the producers, not just the export, the producers are 40% of the potassium fertilizer in the world come from actually Russia and Belarus. And so there's where you have a cascade of first order, you know, the war, then we have a second order effect, economic sanctions, predictable. But then you go, ah, whoever thought that, you know, somebody, somebody at the World Bank probably knew this, right? That uh, when you put sanctions on Belarus and Russia, you're cutting off, you know, 40% of the world's potassium fertilizer. Hmm. So tell me, Jim, since I think you know more about this than I do, what's the interaction between the cutoff of the potassium-based fertilizer and the cutoff of wheat? the joint consequence of that. Yeah, it's interesting. I did some research uh, yesterday in preparation for this, just so I wouldn't completely be making it up on the fly. And uh, this is where you get into, you know, sort of deeper thinking about markets and things like reflexivity, et cetera, which is that 
most of the agricultural countries of the world actually already had their fertilizer stockpiled. But two of them are just about, two of the big, less developed countries, Brazil and India, are about to go into their planting season. In India, the main planting season's in June, right after the monsoon. And in Brazil, because they're, you know, they're obviously Southern Hemisphere, so opposite of us, their planting season, the equivalent of spring planting in the U.S. is September, October. And it's thought that India has enough. It's also thought that Brazil does not. And the big crop that Brazil has in the world market, well, they have a lot. They're, you know, they're become multifaceted, but soybeans in particular is, you know, Brazil, I believe now the biggest producer of soybeans. And soybeans are very consumptive of fertilizer. So we may see soybean prices go up if, you know, if, if, if. How much does Brazil actually have in stock? We don't know. How much does India actually have in stock? We're not sure. But what we do know is if this reduction of export were to continue one more year, there'd be a lot of people in a world of hurt, including Brazil and India. Which countries can increase their wheat production? India. And India has actually gotten a windfall so far because they're not actually a quite substantial wheat exporter. U.S. certainly can. We can substitute, if I have noticed, a lot more wheat growing in the Shenandoah Valley here this year. I don't think it had to do with the Ukraine situation because it had to have been planted before it happened. I think it had to do with relative price between corn and wheat. Mm-hmm. And so in the U.S., you can generally substitute wheat and corn. And the price of wheat is up about 45%. And the price of corn is up about 25%. And so at the margin, at least, that will get a fair number of American farmers next year to plant more wheat. Of course, farmers are always bitten in the ass by the fact if they all act together and plant lots more wheat, the price might actually go down. So they have to think through whether they want to play the first order strategy or or, or think through and go to the second order strategy, which says everyone else is going to plant wheat, so therefore I'm going to plant corn, right? And there'll be a mix. People will have mixes of those strategies. And some of them, the really smart farmers will explicitly take a mixed strategy, right? Which will say mm-hmm. volatility is going to be high. And as we know about complex systems, predicting the future is goddamn hard. So rather than trying to make a play in one direction or another, instead of doing all corn or all wheat, I'll do half and half, in which case I'm self-hedged with respect to their relative prices. Yeah, excellent. That's a that's an important concept. Let's return for a second to black swans, because there's one more point I want to make about okay. the relation to second order effects. So you and I and I'll just put back on the table two concepts that you that you mentioned. One is agency individual agency and strategy. And the second is reflexivity of George Soros, right? So one issue that I find sort of particularly interesting about black swans and and coming back to the agency point, black swans can be genuine or they can be perceived, right? So we, we might perceive an event as extreme, maybe it isn't really, but because we have agency, perceiving it as extreme can change our behavior. So that's important to keep in mind. So one one of the things about black swans that I find interesting is this, their consequences. So as events are perceived to be extreme, they tend to fundamentally, fundamentally is important here, change the behavior of actors. So we see actors adopting different strategies when the stock market starts to crash than when it's operating under sort of a normal volatility. And what happens as a consequence of a, of a fundamental shift in strategy is that the underlying distribution can change. And when the underlying distribution can change, that means that second order effects that might have been really rare under the previous distribution can become more common. So we get with black swans and the feedback they induce a potential amplification of of hard to predict second order effects. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one way, one reason that one would expect that is if it's literally a black swan, i.e., nobody expected it, it's not built into anybody's strategy. Right. And once it now becomes known that X is possible, well, one, you have to deal with the first and second order effects of that black swan. But then you also have to deal with the strategic implications of the fact that this is probably going to happen again. And so both aspects will end up causing the, the fabric of all these myriad interrelationships to shift around in dynamic and agentic ways. And then you got on top of it, reflexivity, which for those who don't know about the term, George Soros was once popularized. It was around before him. But the shorthand version of it doesn't do full justice to it is that financial markets, particularly very volatile ones like currencies and commodities, are about the anticipation of anticipation of anticipation of anticipation, right? And so, et cetera, out for an infinite series in theory, though usually three or four levels gets most of the meaningful information. So, you know, something that 
would happen at the first order calculation in two years, maybe. People may start moving in the market tomorrow afternoon in anticipation that that's going to happen. And then uh, second order traders will say they anticipate that people will do that. So they're anticipating the anticipation. And then uh, parasites operating on traders, you know, anticipate the anticipation. And so at least in my terminology, there's an example of reflexivity in operation in human systems. And we discussed that on a previous podcast, in, I think with Melanie Mitchell, with respect to COVID, when we were talking about the failure of models to predict the number of deaths some number of weeks or months down the road. And one of the reasons for those failures, in addition to the models being preliminary, is that there were social interventions and other kinds of interventions that changed the COVID dynamics. And those have to be taken into account, as, like you're saying, in this anticipation mode in our models. But it's hard to do that early on. And that brings me to another point, which is coming back to outliers and black swans, any, any um, you know, it's much harder to, to make predictions of events that you expect that, they, that are expected to have low probability if you have an un, a good underlying mechanistic model. And, you know, one of the places where we see this sort of debate in a kind of fun way playing out is in, is in the um, discussion around whether hot hands exist. Ah, yes, the sporting, uh, the sports statistics debate, right? Sports, that's exactly the point. It's, it's, it's at this point, it's a statistical discussion. And that's the problem. Right. So you saw there's originally uh, this Tversky paper that was published in the 70s in which the concept of hot hand was they debunked it. And it was, you know, statistical analysis. And then Joshua, um, think of his last name in a second. He and his collaborator wrote papers over the last couple of years in which they showed that in the Tversky paper, they had the wrong null statistical null model. And that with the right null model, you could show in some data that there was a, there was evidence, statistical evidence for a hot hand. And Sid Redner at SFI, who's a statistical physicist, has, has often also sort of debunked the idea that there's a hot hand or p- interesting patterns in, say, basketball shot data and showed that it's largely a random walk. But in all of these cases, there's what's missing is an underlying mechanistic model. Yeah, causal model. Yeah, there's no causal model. Exactly. And so in the case of the hot hand, what we really want is a neurophysiological model that explains how you how an individual might enter the hot hand state and and stay in and what factors would contribute to that individual staying in it. And that would help us know where to look in the statistical data for the start and end of the hot hand, which would make a much more refined null model than the current ones we're currently using. Yeah, I'd, I'd point people towards Pearl and his work on causality and causal networks as at least a good introduction to how to think about the fact that causal models are perhaps more subtle than people sometimes think they are and, and could indeed manifest in performance in baseball in such a way that it wouldn't necessarily look like it's there, right? Because of the, the model of causality could itself have a fair amount of stochasticity to it, right? Absolutely. And I, it also is worth pointing out that the sort of literature that linking mechanistic models to Pearl's framework is still very much in development, right? So when I say a mechanistic model, it obviously is, is about causality, but the mapping to a causal network in the sort of Pearl sense is sort of still under development. Indeed, indeed. That's interesting. I'm going to re- react to what you said and throw something out as an example of a second order, an nth order. I don't know if it's second, third, fourth, about black swans. So I hadn't thought about it that way. I would suggest, at least I would hypothesize, that most people, say, running countries in Europe, thought that a World War I-style war in Europe was between big-ass armies hammering the shit out of each other was very unlikely to occur anytime soon. And the defense budgets reflected that. Now, with the fact, well, shit, World War I beat the shit out of each other, wars are possible in Europe. We better raise the hell out of our defense budgets. And you know, Germany may well double its defense budget. And one could argue that one there's two different ways to look at that. One, it's you know sort of a specific counter to Putin, and the other is it's a reaction from the black swan appearing, which had been thought not to exist, right? And and, and trying to disentangle those two is difficult, but it's, that strikes me as an example of this black swan that most people had discounted down to a very low level. Suddenly, there it is, and now we have to take it into consideration, and so we raising our defense budgets a bunch. Yeah, I think I have two remarks in response to that. The first is I noticed in comments in people interviewed in Ukraine, journalists and so forth, that there was this remark being repeatedly made, like, how could this be, you know, 2022 and we're having this kind of, you know, traditional 
20th century war, as you, as you said. And the implication there was that we now live in a civilized, we now live in a civilized world, or at least certain, you know, sections of the globe are civilized, which is problematic for a variety of reasons. But that was kind of the implication. So that's a little bit different than the, you know, the sort of colloquial wisdom that democracies don't fight each other, which maybe has some empirical basis, but it's a short history. And Russia wasn't a democracy anyway, right? So, and Russia is not a democracy, right? But they did have McDonald's, so it did. It was yet another refutation that no countries with McDonald's had ever fought each other. And there's only a few examples, uh, but it is one. I think the more powerful sort of explanation for this sort of nonchalance about the possibility of this kind of war happening is trade. And so there's this constant, you know, return to this to this argument that because we are dependent on Russia, Germany in particular, for energy resources, right, oil and gas and so forth, that there couldn't be a war. But I think what people fail to do is look at the asymmetries in those trade arrangements. Now, obviously, there are there are economists who are looking at these kinds of things, but but more mainstream understanding, I think, neglected those asymmetries. And so that needs to be examined more closely. Yeah. Yeah, and the other issue specifically about trade is people forgot history. All I have to do is go back and look. World trade grew very rapidly in the late 19th century and early 20th century and, re- and reached 25% of global GDP right before World War I. And many, many people thought large-scale war amongst the industrial powers was impossible for that reason. Well, guess what? And here's the interesting thing. 25% fell very rapidly, and global trade as a percentage of GDP did not reach 25% again until 1988. Right. Amazing. Took 78 years. Now it's higher still. But they were completely wrong. And basically, we had a whole series of wars, obviously, World War One, World War II, the Cold War, etc. And so just you know, that, looking at that historical example proved that that hypothesis is wrong. I don't want to see the baby thrown out with the bathwater. So I think there's some nuance here. And one is that trade may, is not is necessary, but not sufficient. That might be, you know, one part of this. And the second is that the structure, the asymmetries in those trade networks matters possibly quite a bit. And in fact, not only matters in terms of preventing these kinds of conflicts, but could actually be used as leverage as we're seeing happened in this one, in these kinds of conflicts, if, if it's distributed the wrong way, right? If, if the imbalance, if there's this imbalance as there, as there is in the control of, of, um, of energy by Russia. Yeah, well, of course, it's, uh, there's lots of interesting asymmetries in trade. You know, one that works in Russia's favor is on energy, but one that definitely does not work on in Russia's favor is microchips. Mm-hmm. Good point. Uh, yeah, they, uh, many, it turns out many of their military missiles require American-made or Dutch-made or Korean-made microchips, and they're going to have a shitload of a hard time building more missiles and stuff. If this really does turn into a multi-year World War One style knockdown drag out, they're going to have a real problem replenishing their you know advanced munitions print things if they can't get the uh, you know the state of the art microchips from somewhere in the west and it would take a long time to re-engineer those things to use chinese chips for example yeah and that relates to another point which is that this isn't really a 20th century war it's really a hybrid war it's using conventional warfare plus a lot of cyber warfare that we don't know so much about yeah, in fact, for a friend of mine, John Robb, who's been on the show quite a few times, often to talk about Ukraine war, he calls it fifth gen warfare, where you know the cyber part is is huge, and that's actually been I think quite surprising to everybody how well the Ukrainians have done in the cyber war, right? The in the mimetic war, uh, you know, we had this idea that the the Russians were this great had this great ability to manipulate the West, but it turned out. They haven't done shit, right? Nobody much, you know, likes Putin, and they have got very little sympathy. And the Ukrainians have been brilliant in every part, every aspect of PR. It's really been quite remarkable, at least in the West. Now it is true that the Russians have had more influence in places like China and India. Actually, there are a few analyses I've seen come out on this topic yet, and I haven't looked at them carefully, but they seem to suggest that most of the Russian energy in, in this respect is is elsewhere. It's not directed toward the West, which I guess they think the, the Russians think is a battle already lost. And it looks like the energy that's going into that propaganda movement in these other countries is pretty large. So it's not something to, I mean, the sort of Ukrainian skill set may also be a Russian one. We're just not really seeing it as um, the way we're seeing the Ukrainian. 
Yeah, it makes sense. And that's, and that's a good point because they are clearly putting a lot of work into certainly India and China, two biggest countries in the world, and have actually quite strong PR in their favor majority in both countries. Mm-hmm. Though I think in India, it's slipping a little bit, but in China, it's certainly still a majority. Since we're sort of on this topic, another th- uh, point I think that is worth highlighting, and it sort of came up a little bit earlier in our conversation, is that we've actually had two major events back to back here, right? So we had a pandemic, or and still have it, that generated social instability, supply chain chaos, workforce changes, and now stimulus packages that occurred, you know, at, sort of at the beginning of the pandemic and during that were designed to ameliorate some of the problems that I just listed are having liquidity and interest rate effects, right? And then this is followed by and coupled to this Ukraine war, which is a huge financial perturbation. We can talk about, you know, what it means to be a huge perturbation if that's interesting. Financial network, potentially financial network realignment, right, because of the sanctions, food and energy shortages, which we've already discussed, an increased flow of arms around the globe, possibly, which I haven't seen many people talk about, but obviously into Ukraine, and then the sort of correspondent geopolitical instability. So just these two huge perturbations back to back. Yep. Then one of them, one of them I pulled out based on an email a thread I think you were on is the dollar is up quite a bit. Right. Since the start of Ukraine often happens during you know, world uncertainty. And I looked up the number and there's twelve point four trillion dollars of dollar denominated debt outside the U.S. And at the peak, the dollar was up about nine percent versus a broad basket of our trading partner currencies currently up about six and a half percent. But even six and a half percent is almost a trillion dollars of uh, nominal wealth that has switched due to the dollar change as a call it dollar change, a second order effect. And there's been winners and losers. People who actually hold those bonds have gotten a windfall. Right. So if you hold some, you know, say Brazilian bonds that were denominated in dollars and you live in Brazil, those bonds are worth probably more than six or seven percent more for no good reason other than the Ukraine war. On the other hand, when Brazil has to refinance those bonds, they're going to have to pay, assuming everything, nothing else changes, which of course is wrong, but assuming nothing else changes, it's going to cost them six percent more to fund their debt next time around due to changes in uh, relative changes in currency. And so there's you know, that's a second order, then a third order effect as these things play out, all triggered from the second order effect of the rush to the dollar during times of international crisis. Yeah. And, you know, it's worth pointing out. So one of the, the reasons I got interested in second order effects goes back to this work on robustness I did in the 2000s and 2010s. And in that work, we were studying the consequences of a certain kind of conflict management in, in actually in monkey groups or the sort of connectedness of monkey social networks. And we found there were certain individuals who were responsible for doing this policing. They broke up fights among other individuals. And we found by removing those individuals, by by disabling the policing mechanism, that the social networks of the other monkeys changed. So the policing mechanism was actually serving as a kind of modulator of how individuals interacted with each other. And this is an indirect or second order effect. That's not observable when the policing sort of mechanism is working. It only becomes observable under this perturbation where it's been removed. And so the the basic point was that these monkeys had much richer social, much more positive social networks when the policing mechanism was was working and much impoverished networks when the policing mechanism wasn't. But it was not possible to see the effect until the perturbation. So an interesting question is, what hidden effects? I mean, we can anticipate some of these, and you could have probably anticipated in the monkey case if you, you know, you you understood how the cost function for social interactions relied on the policing mechanism. So what the policing mechanism was actually doing was making the cost of interaction with your group mates lower because if you did get into a fight, there was somebody there to stop it. Right. So you could maybe have predicted it would have this effect, but you know, often often these things are missed until the perturbation happens. There's a good example from Ukraine. I suppose you could have imagined it, but you know, if you look at the history, it seemed somewhat unlikely that Finland and Sweden would join NATO, right? And those are two countries that have historically, especially in the Swedish case, been a couple hundred years, have been militantly neutral in the, I mean, people forget, Sweden was able to be neutral during World War II, despite being surrounded by a German military. And for them to have actually moved their flag from neutrality is a pretty big deal. And what effects that will have in the future, not sure. But there's an example of perturbation. World War I in Europe, 
causes Sweden and Finland, and of course Finland in some ways is even more significant because it's actually got a long border with Russia, uh, moves explicitly into NATO with all kinds of third, fourth, fifth, and sixth order implications that it's hard to see. Well, you know, I think, so an interesting, so the, the larger story there is that no one really, and maybe not especially Putin, predicted that the NATO alliance would become stronger as a consequence of, of his actions. But one has to consider, so, you know, we talked a lot about collective behavior and collective intelligence during COVID. And and I even, you know, Mel, with Mellon even wrote an essay in which the first, the beginning of the first paragraph of the essay is about the enormous potential to harness collective intelligence to produce you know, good social outcomes like the control of COVID, right? And in many ways, we failed to do that. But somehow in the buildup to Ukraine, an incredibly, it seems like from what I read, an incredibly strong behind the scenes alliance was built, you know, in Europe and with the United States in response to Putin. And that, I wonder to what extent that actually was, facilitated, you know, was it facilitated by this sort of collective intelligence failure with COVID? Interesting. It might have. It might have been. Right. So we're talking about this in a way that we weren't, this kind of coordination, collective intelligence, in a way that we wouldn't have been, I think, without COVID. So it's on everyone's minds. That's interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. Because there was a failure of coordination then. And hence, a simple takeaway is better coordinate next time something like something bad happens. And, you know, a very simple rule. And even politicians are capable of following simple rules, right? And even, even more than that, just the sort of social and economic consequences of COVID made everyone feel a bit fragile. And so the sort of stakes for responding correctly in the Ukraine case, are higher, perhaps, than they might have been without COVID. Makes sense. Also, our you know, like financial situations are more fraught, for instance, right? Which actually, in some ways, makes the reaction even more impressive. Now, again, John Robb, who I mentioned previously, he has a theory that the coordination comes from another network, which we don't generally see, which is public opinion. He believes that the strong, stronger-than-expected reaction from the Western Europeans in particular, is actually not driven by the masterful diplomacy of Biden, but rather from a genuine grassroots network uprising in disgust at Putin and the disgust at reintroducing, you know, gross 20th century style war into into Europe. And that even ones that were probably reluctant, like the Germans, were stampeded by network public opinion which could wicked on more or less instantly. And of course, being a fifth gen war with plenty of you know videos of horrific war crimes and just the general brutality of war. And so that he would argue that's the court, that's what actually produced the seemingly coordinated behavior rather than any magical diplomacy by anybody. Yeah, I expect it was an interaction. And, and the reason I say that is David and I, David Krakauer, who's the president of SPI and also a collaborator of mine, I just published a paper in PLOS One, which I will be probably writing about on Twitter in the next week or two, on institutional change and how it affects grassroots or bottom-up perceptions of of laws, regulations, and social norms. And so one of the motivations for writing this paper for me was uh, a paper came out in PNAS a couple years ago on gay marriage. And it was observed that there was this flip. So this is the paper David and I wrote is on sort of like, when do you get tipping points in institutions? you know, critical points and so forth. What causes that? Why are some institutions changing slowly? Why do some flip? Why do some unexpectedly change fast? And like I said, the motivation for this paper in some part was this PNS paper on gay marriage in which the authors observed that there was this flip in public perception, acceptance of gay marriage. And after federal legislation was passed. And when they looked at the data more carefully, they found that there was actually strong latent support for gay marriage in the population in the United States, but that everyone was afraid to express their opinion because they thought their neighbor had a different opinion. Interesting. So once the federal legislation was passed, it was like this global signal of acceptance, and everyone felt much freer to say what, what they really thought. That's very interesting. I could see that. So this is a, a kind of an example of what John Robb is saying. It's a sort of, there is this kind of grassroots change or, or micro scale level change, but there, it was, it was latent and hidden because of perception. Right. And then when there was federal legislation or an institutional norm in place, this time imposed from the top, you know, that, that the perception, the true perception was revealed. 
And so that might be that might be a little of the case, you know, in um, in Europe. And I don't know what role Biden, you know, maybe played in, in that, just facilitating the expression of it. Those are those are ideas to explore. I don't think we we definitely don't know the answer yet. But I like this point that there was this kind of like grassroots distaste for brutal conventional warfare. And that was part of the motivation. It brings me to, you know, the the other sort of grill in the room, which is the nuclear element. And so, you know, I think we're in this interesting situation where we have this game theory for, you know, rudimentary game theory that everyone holds in their heads. Everyone, you know, every person has it sort of in their heads in the U.S. that you don't go to war. You don't go to nuclear war with another nuclear superpower. Right. And and we believe science tells us that that is, you know, that is the right decision. And of course, there are many, you know, there are, there's a lot of variation hidden in there, which there aren't just two superpowers, there are three. And now there's the opportunity or the option of using a nuclear weapon on, on you know, a, a, a nation that's not a superpower as punishment for another superpower's action or on a nation that doesn't have nuclear capability Right. And so it's quite complicated discussion. And there's no reason I think this this logic or principle that we carry around in our heads is very misleading. Yeah. And we and people who do follow this do know that the Russians have a doctrine called escalate to de-escalate. Exactly. That if you're on if things are going really badly, you can escalate to tactical nukes to make the other side back off. And it may happen in Ukraine, you know. I think more likely we get sort of a frozen conflict situation there. But it is possible that the Russian socio-political system starts to crack the way the Germans did in 1918 or the way the Russians did in 1917. I don't think the Ukrainians have the power to flat out beat the Russians, at least not anytime soon, maybe over a period of two or three years. But uh, there could be a, a kind of a collective breakdown of the willingness to fight and you know some political turmoil all going on at the same time, which has the effect of the Russian military more or less collapsing. Under a scenario like that, the escalate to de-escalate could actually be what happens where either it's a warning shot, one you know, one theory is the Russians would sight off a nuke over the Black Sea, or you know, you know a little heavier, they would take out a remote military base with a small tactical nuke, and, or one step above that, they take out a you know isolated town of 50,000 people. But we have to be prepared for that because that is actually part of Russian doctrine. Yeah, it's part of Russian doctrine. They could also use a, a small tactical nuke near Chernobyl and create a confusing situation that would make it hard to respond to. They live to the east, though. That's not smart. I don't think they'll do that. That's why I was not too worried about Chernobyl. The wind blows in their direction. So that, that would be exceedingly stupid for them to do. Well, there are other nuclear facilities in Ukraine. But that, that's a good point. There are some constraints. But I do think this sort of, you know, Sweden and Finland joining NATO or about to join NATO, this may be part of that discussion. I think during the Cold War, you know, up to the fall of the Berlin Wall, we still very much had this sort of old game theory model in our head of superpowers fighting each other and weren't thinking so much about these alternative um, uses of, of nuclear weapons as leverage. You know, I, like you say, uh, over the Black Sea or using a small tactical nuke or just generating a confusing situation, a nuclear situation that would make it hard to assign blame. And so these are new, uh, new elements. And then the, con and then the reaction to of China to the use of a nuclear weapon by Russia or any of the United States and its allies, you know, that has to be factored in as well. And so there's so much more uncertainty. It's opened up a number of scenarios that were thought very low probability have suddenly become much higher than near zero. Right? Exactly. You have said, what's the chances of Russians using a tactical nuclear weapon in Europe? If you'd asked that question two or three years ago, people would say close to zero. Now you'd have to say, 10%. And that's a much bigger number, right? We, we, we now have to actually add it into our calculations. Yeah, I think you could say that it was basically effectively zero last summer. And I do think like in, you know, at the start of the Ukraine conflict, it seemed like the probability, this discussion, at least, uh, you know, in social media and in the news was much more heated. It's come down a bit, but it seems to be building again. Mm -hmm. well, of course, the other thing is facts on the ground. You know, I talked, I did a whole bunch of podcasts right after the war started with various experts and some, they varied. One of them was actually the most prescient, which was, he said, nope, the Russians aren't going to win this, but 
the majority of them said, "Ah, it'll be over in two weeks, right? Maybe another two months for the Russians to mop up and take all of eastern Ukraine. Well, that didn't happen. Turned out the Russian military was a whole lot worse than anybody thought it was. And the Ukrainian military was better than most people thought it was. And the result is, is now that it is possible Russia could lose or at least be in a really bad situation at some point. And that was, that was not actually anyone's, any expert's opinion the first week of the war. You know, the, the first week of the war was arguing, is it going to be three days? Is it going to be two weeks? Is it going to be two months? Russia's definitely going to win. But since the events on the ground have shown that the perception of both sides was wrong by most experts, but not all, you know, that escalate to de-escalate scenario, we could, we could reach it. So again, as you gather information, as you probe the system, the probabilities have to change. Right. So now we have two potential perturbations on the table. One would be the consequences of Sweden and Finland joining NATO, Putin's reaction to that. And another would be, in terms of black swans, and another would be the second order effects resulting from the detonation of a tactical nuclear weapon. Right. Yeah, well, actually, another one is Ukraine beats Russia, right? Or, or the, you know, Russia's cracking under the stress. I mean, Ukraine's not going to, you know, defeat Russia in a head-to-head slugging match, but it could be a 1918 situation where the German empire just lost the will to fight and had to sue for peace. And that's what could lead to the nuclear escalation. I don't see anything short of that leading to the nuclear escalation, one would hope. <laughs> but it is interesting that now either for reasons of corruption or a lack of appreciation of what's actually needed, Putin failed to invest in his sort of on-the-ground conventional warfare but has invested in an extensive nuclear arsenal. Well, actually, they did invest a shitload in their um, uh, conventional military after they performed very poorly in the Georgian conflict, where they won, but only by brute force. And they spent a tremendous amount, in theory, upgrading their military, uh, their, their conventional military. But nepotism and corruption appear to have you know, sucked an awful lot out of that. And their doctrines are just not very good. You know, it's, it's astounding to everybody that they have been unable to suppress the Ukrainian Air Force. They've been unable to su- suppress the Ukrainian air defenses. You know, if the U.S. had been up against Ukraine, there wouldn't have been a single Ukrainian thing flying after about two days, right? But the Russians just can't execute, seemingly can't execute state-of-the-art air war, essentially. But, but so even the corruption explanation, which is, you know, a little different than just a plain-out failure to invest in conventional warfare suggests a kind of lazy fair attitude a little bit about the importance of conventional warfare. So I'm just wondering, I don't know the answer to this, to what extent did Putin himself expect that most, you know, most warfare going forward was going to be either using nuclear capability as leverage and or cyber warfare and didn't really expect to have to have a protracted perhaps because he overestimated, you know, the, the initial success protracted uh, on the ground conflict. Yeah, it's probably in a you know, low probability slice of his scenario planning. Because uh, again, if, if you believe what you hear, and we have, to re- we have to remember, we're always being spun by the Ukrainians, right? You know, they're, our, they're on our side, but they have every incentive to spin as anybody else does. So always have to take that into consideration. You know, the theory that Putin thought Kiev would fall in three days, right? And that that was his main bet. Doesn't really matter how shitty your military is, right? Uh, the the stresses aren't going to show in three days or even in two weeks. But as it turned out, once you get past two weeks, now one of the more prescient people that I talked to did say that if the Russians don't win in two weeks, they're going to be in trouble uh, because their logistical capabilities are so bad and their ability to do combined arms, land, air is so bad that that's going to surface and it's going to bite them in the ass in a very severe way. He was exactly right, as it turned out. You know, there's this idea that actually David has worked on in evolutionary theory called arena selection. And the idea of arena selection is that before you release a strategy to the world, the organism releases a strategy to the world or actually plays it against competitors, the organism tests it out in a limited arena environment, a safe environment to see how well it works under stress. And this, this idea has been on my mind a lot lately, partly it's, it's, it's a bit of a loose metaphor, but partly because obviously China is observing, you know, how the Russians are doing the response of the West, Ukraine, how conventional warfare is actually working on the ground, you know, and learning presumably a tremendous amount. And so this is a second order effect 
Yep, indeed. And one that's very interesting. And, you know, again, I've talked to some of my guests, every one of the guests I've had, that's always been the last question. All right. What's the impact of the lessons learned so far from Ukraine and China? Now, one of my guests, I think he made a, bl- a huge blunder. He said, well, the Chinese are going to attack Taiwan sooner. And I said, I'll bet you a bottle of my best bourbon against a bottle of your best Schlivovitz, because uh, he's a Slovenian, right? And the, I said, yeah, China's going to learn the opposite lesson, which is, that, you know, in the history of warfare, there's been, a, uh, over a long centuries arc, there's been changes in the relative efficacy of defense and offense, Right. In fact, the amazing slaughters in the U.S. Civil War came around from the fact that at West Point, the uh, generals were all trained on Yamini's books about the Napoleonic conflict. And in the, the balance of technologies in the Napoleonic era favored the attack. A bayonet charge will prevail two-thirds, three-quarters of the time under Napoleonic conditions. The technological change was the rifled musket which tripled the effective range of the musket. So it used to be they couldn't hit you for, until you're within 75 yards and really within 50. With the rifled musket and the mini ball that came in well after Napoleonic era, in the Civil War, you do pickets charge and you your guys are starting to fall at 200 yards. And by the time they get to your line, most of them are dead. And so that one change in military technology resulted in the, the balance of statistical power going from the, from the offense to the defense. And if you look very carefully at Civil War battles, very, very seldom did the side that was on the tactical offense win. And, and you know, some of the classic battles that Robert E. Lee won, you know, Second Manassas and Charlotte and Chancellorsville in particular, were classic examples. But what he did was he, he let the other side attack first. And once they had blunted their spear on his shield because of the superior power of defense, he then counterattacked while they were out of their defensive positions and then caused them to panic and have to break and run for D.C. And, you know, since World War II, the general assumption has been that uh, you know, combined air, land, armor, et cetera, gave the advantage to the offense. You know, World War II, lines move very rapidly. And what I think what people seem to have been, even in the first Gulf War and in, you know, the Iraq Second War, man, we blew right through them. Things moved very, very quickly. Well, it turns out that in more closely balanced forces, smart weapons may have moved the balance now back to the tactical defense you know, who would have thunk that guys with javelins would stop the Russian army, you know, the very tank-heavy, very artillery-heavy army? But it did, right? And if I were China, the lesson I would take is I don't think I want to fuck with Taiwan anytime soon. Right? I think I will wait for it to fall into my hands through politics and economics. That trying to attack it is probably more dangerous than I would have thought before Ukraine. But not just from the sort of war point standpoint, also from the collective response of the West, which was unexpected, right? Yeah, I think that's also good. That if the West could respond against for about Ukraine, will the Pacific periphery respond, you know, very strongly in, against Taiwan, you know, the Japanese, the Koreans? And the potential success of U.S. and Ukraine sharing of, so this unusual sharing of intelligence that we've been hearing about, right? And possibly you know, behind the scenes intelligence with respect to locations of Russian troops, messing with missile GPS, or what, I don't know how missiles are actually, um, you know, with the navigation. Some are, most are GPS these days, but some of them aren't. There's various technologies. Right, because there have been, there's been, I've seen in the press, a lot of discussion about the surprising failure of Russian missiles to hit targets. It could just be they're shitty, right? Uh but so anyway, I think China must be thinking about the cyber warfare angle here. And obviously, you know, we know China's excelling and exploding and it's developing its AI capacity, capabilities, right? So time is on their side. Maybe. Though, like Russia, a lot of their investment is wasted due to nepotism and corruption. And so they, you probably have to divide by four in terms of actual muscle. So they're probably still well behind us in that category, even though they're putting more more meat into it. Their stuff is just so corrupt and particularly nepotistic. But yeah. Is that right? Well, they're doing interesting experiments with social credit systems that use machine learning and AI that, you know, where they're, they're doing different policy experiments around China that are obviously, you know, from the sort of West point of view, unethical. But 
very, very interesting from the point of view of controlling formation of institutions, controlling individual behavior using microscopic data. It's a very different strategy than Russia uses. Russia's too incompetent to pull that one off, right? But it also operates, I think, using a older it's, it doesn't appear to me Russia's control of the population doesn't appear to be as micro scale as, as. No, it's not. They're totally incompetent when it comes to that stuff. You know, they just use crude, very crude. You, know, you can still get through the Russian firewall without any problem, unlike the it's much, much more difficult to get through the Chinese firewall. And they don't have anything like social credit systems or constant surveillance or anything like They're just a basic dictatorship, you know. Which, but that brings me to one of my final points, which is getting a glimpse of. That in a, you know, in a way that I think was really only science fiction before, the possibility of a bipolar war that's divided up in a complicated way between democratic-leaning nations and authoritarian slash totalitarian ones, but where the potential diversity in the total, totalitarian authoritarian regimes is actually higher than one would expect, right? We've got lots of different models on the table now. That is true. That's interesting. From the sort of social credit-dominated China version to the very crude brute force Russian version. Yeah, and you got kind of you know hybrids like Turkey and Hungary, right? Which are kind of crackpot traditionalists, and, and we might have that in the United States here in 2024. Hope not, but yes, we we've certainly been um, at the cusp at times. Yeah, so that that sort of uh, possibility of this kind of bipolar world and strange alliances forming between authoritarian regimes is very interesting. Yeah, one of my little uh, pet ideas, I actually, I, I haven't circulated, but I'll put it out here for the first time, which is maybe it's time to end the United Nations and instead start a new organization of open democracies. And it would have, if you want to be a member of this open democracy world governance, you have to agree to leave your internet open, right? Uh, you have to agree to international supervision of your elections, you have to agree to reasonably strong free speech, maybe not quite as extreme as the U.S., but say as equivalent of, say, Canada or something like that, which is uh, considerably less free speech than the U.S., but a lot more than any authoritarian country. And that those countries should just club together and operate collective security, because that was the original reason for the United Nations. No more World War II, right? But we can't really do that with so many authoritarian countries. And as you say, a variety of authoritarian countries. And, and countries like Turkey that actually are reasonably good at interacting with the West. Yeah, or Hungary. You know, Hungary is part of NATO parties and part of the EU. And yet they're really kind of a shitty dictatorship, just a, one of these soft dictatorships of the sort that we could stumble into easily enough. And there ought to be standards that say that if you're a shitty dictatorship, you can't be a member of you know, the open world guild or whatever you want to call it. But here's here's a question. I mean, something I've been worrying about, uh, especially, you know, in, I, which I started thinking about recently in relation to the SWIFT sanctions and the sanctions more generally and what it means for the realignment of financial networks, and in particular, the generation of independent financial networks that run through Russia, China, uh, you know, and other nations, whether it's better to have to keep rogue and bad actors on the inside, so to speak, where you have a kind of arms race of strategies, but where you can keep tabs on them and potentially have the possibility of some control or allow them to build and again, this is like a big second, third order question or allow them to build these independent networks where they basically exclude you. You have very little capacity for oversight other than through intelligence channels, which may be weak. You know, which is which if the world is devolving into this kind of bipolar state where you've got these authoritarian totalitarian regimes on the one side and democratic leaning ones on the other. How and it comes back to our you know discussion about understanding, really understanding the structure of trade networks and how those trade networks even when they seem integrated, can be used as leverage, as they have been here, you know, to control your competitors. So how does all of this play into, is, it, is this something that we, that we want, you know, or do we want to, after the Ukraine conflict sort of calms down, do we want to sort of bring Russia back into, into our financial networks? Do we want to let Russia and China develop an independent system? That's a very good question, right? And this is a bifurcation event in terms of world history. You know, if we exclude Russia permanently, then yes, they certainly will join the Chinese and perhaps some other countries, Venezuela probably, and build a alternative payment structure. 
then the question is, does that put them at a permanent disadvantage? And is that good, right? Because these kinds of things are network effect. And one of the big advantages of SWIFT and the West model is that the vast preponderance of the GDP of the world is in them. So they get you get the great network effect of being a member. So you have, this, you have to think through this in multiple cycles, right? Which is, okay, maybe it's sort of a little bit bad for our network effect to lose them. But the fact that theirs is so inferior will put a substantial negative damper on their economies forever. So therefore, we're willing to take a small loss to the efficacy of, of our network in return for a big loss to them. So this is, you know, kind of a classic, almost prisoner's dilemma-like scenario where you have to think through what you want to do. But it depends on whether we're able to really develop and exploit the energy resources that we have at home, right? And make the EU and, and the United States independent from Russian reserves. We already are. Well, I mean, we're moving. The U.S. is, but the EU is not. Yeah, the EU is not, right? And of course, we have to move that direction anyway. So this just gives us a reason to move more rapidly. And, you know, the truth is, just like Iran, right? Iran hates the West's guts, but guess what? They've been selling oil to us all along at market prices. And in the long term, the Russians will too, because they need the money. So I'm less concerned about their you know, long-term ability to extort around energy. I think we underestimate, and I don't, and this is just based on observing other systems, we underestimate the possibility that Russia and China could catch up in terms of their financial networks. You know, what's the understanding of how long it's going to take to build a SWIFT, really build a, a working SWIFT like China already has one system? That's not hard. That's the, the, the actual plumbing is easy, right? I mean, SWIFT is a remarkable joke. If you actually saw how SWIFT works, it's not a transaction network at all. It's basically an email network and people take the messages and type the shit in by hand. It's hilarious, right? No, no it's not the tech, but I mean, SWIFT has a good governance system. Presumably it's got this cooperative that runs things and Russia and China would have something very different. But it's, the, it's having the sort of nodes, the actors as part of the system that they ha they'd have to build that up. Yeah. Though I'll add one little point here, which people forget. Comparing China to Russia, as it turns out, is almost exactly the same as comparing United States to Canada. The ratios of their populations and the ratios of their GDPs are remarkably similar. And so I think we sometimes overestimate what a big stroke it is for Russia to fall into China's orbit more fully. Because, yes, it's great to have Canada as one of our allies, and they've been great allies, our best allies. But they aren't a major swing force in the world. And Russia just isn't a major swing force in the world anymore, other than the fact they have nukes. So here's, but here's the thing. So it comes back to my earlier remark. I, I alluded to a perturbation discussion. And so the perturbation in, in this case wasn't, so Russia's 12th largest economy, I, you know, I take your point is kind of similar to Canada in terms of its efficacy, but the perturbation was the, the scale and diversity of sanctions that were applied to Russia to debilitate it. And I think that's what we need to focus more on than the consequences to the Russian economy. We put this perturbation on the table that is a kind of financial equivalent of nuclear of use of nuclear weapons. Not yet. Not yet. We haven't quite got there yet, but we could if we uh, embargo oil. That would be the equivalent of nuclear weapons. And and that's, by the way, what caused World War II. I mean, caused the Japanese to attack the United States is when we cut off their oil supply. U.S. was the producer of more than half the world's oil in 1941. And when we embargoed oil to Japan, that's basically what put them on the path to attack Southeast Asia. And then they figure, well, we have to take the U.S. out, so we better hit Pearl Harbor, too. So it's always worth remembering our history. But is there, you know, the, the, again, the question about sanctions, like, are these sanctions truly unprecedented in the sense that the diversity of, of sanctions in the package of sanctions and the bundle of sanctions, coupled to the timescale in which they were cobbled together, coupled to the number of nations that back them, you know, how large a perturbation is this in the sort of sanction space? It's not yet as strong as the maximum sanctions we put on Iran. Is that right? Yeah. But was that over a longer time period? Much, much longer period of time. So this, in terms of speed, you know, wicking it on, probably, probably yes. But in terms of the actual severity of the sanctions, not as severe as the maximum sanctions on Iran under Trump, let's say. But that does, but that does suggest that the combination of the diversity, magnitude, and speed 
does mean that sanctions have been kind of suggests to me that they've been weaponized in a way that they haven't been weaponized before. Yeah, I think that's fair. And then your point, then, then your point would be that it's another, you know, black swan or at least a gray swan, right? That's possible for such broad sanctions to be brought to bear very rapidly, and therefore people like China says, hmm, "We want to make sure that doesn't happen to us," right? Exactly. So they then have an incentive to figure out, the, you know, agentically what their workaround is, which is perhaps to, you know, diversify, you know, develop develop a trade block that has, you know, a complementary imports and exports. Very difficult to do, by the way. But making the bipolar making the bipolar situation more likely. Yes. Yes. It gives them an incentive. If they could, it would give them an incentive to build a truly bipolar world. But whether that's feasible or not, I don't know. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, you know. Over time they could, I suppose. And I would suppose in some way, in some sense, the swing power is India. You know, India is really rising rapidly. Its growth may actually exceed the growth rates of China soon as China slows and India is reaching that sweet spot where its growth will continue to accelerate for a while. If they could somehow suck India into their orbit, China would become much more capable of potentially building a bipolar world. Well, I think the question, one of the questions there, and again, I'm certainly not an expert on India-China relationships, but it seems like one of the questions there is how far in the future is it that we have serious water shortages and China is controlling India's water because yep. it can. Yep. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. And of course, both of them are going to be screwed by global warming as the glaciers melt. At first, it'll be a windfall because uh, water flow will increase as the glaciers melt. And then once they melt, they're screwed. Yeah, there's our third perturbation, climate change. Yeah, yeah, that's a, a slower rolling one, but one that will, if, if the other ones don't get us, that's the one that will get us in the end, right? That's my cheerful thought for the day. If we don't nuke ourselves, if we don't drive ourselves insane with social media, uh, then sooner or later we'll just cook ourselves. So. All right, well, it's been an interesting conversation. Any uh, additional thoughts, any other places we want to go before we wrap her up? No, I just really want to emphasize, you know, the, you know, think hard about this interaction between these two events, the pandemic and this Ukraine war with the supply chain, stimulus, you know, inflation, liquidity issues now coupled to this financial perturbation, potentially weaponizing sanctions and these realignments we're seeing. I mean, I, I just I haven't seen enough discussion of that intelligent discussion about how these two back to back events are feeding each other. Well, that's a very good point. I hadn't, frankly, hadn't thought about that much either. You know, psychologically, to your point, that maybe it made us more willing to club up financially. Certainly, uh, we deployed a shitload of our financial reserves, probably more than all of them, to fight COVID. And now we're stuck in a position of financial perturbations and much less resources to do anything about it. And there was so much uncertainty at the start of COVID you know, how right is it to blame the Fed for its decisions then? Well, I think they made the right decisions then, right? The question is, do they carry it on? One, that one last cycle, was that too much, right? Probably. The, you know, the, the earlier ones was pretty brilliant. They actually did a great job of, uh, of limiting the financial damage of COVID to everybody's surprise. Remember, the stock market exploded upward. Wow, right? But then they- but There seems not to be a lot of backtracking on that in the press. Yeah, yeah I don't know. We'll see. Time will tell. Probably the last round was too much. It was probably unnecessary, and, and certainly its magnitude is a little too large. I do think that just in terms of control and intervention in complex systems, the potential success of the Fed at that moment, plus the development of the COVID vaccines, which of course had you know many many years of work hiding behind, hiding behind it, are two successes that should be explored and discussed because we often spend our time on the failures. But if, if in fact, the Fed's decision at the start of the pandemic was a good one, and, you know, and the vaccine thing was just sort of suddenly made possible by, by the availability of funds to finish the development of those vaccines, you know, we, sh we should think about why those, you know, what it was about those two, you know, successes that, that made them work. Well, that's a good point. That's a good point. And what, you know, it's just sort of an interesting and odd, you know, kind of question mark in history. Trump should have been able to take a lot of credit for the vaccines, right? He went all in with Operation Warp Speed, unprecedented, pulled regulatory constraints out of the way, just threw money at it like a drunken sailor on leave in Norfolk. And it happened, right? And it's not clear that somebody less decisive and more bound up in in tradition might not have been able to do that. And yet, 
he hasn't taken too much credit for it. And his numbnuts followers mostly seem to be uh, anti-vaccine, which is kind of very bizarre. I think Trump's role in that needs more thought because the the mRNA vaccine science was there, really. It was just a little bit left to do. There was just a little bit left to know. Maybe it was getting it made. Yeah, distributed, getting all the bottles made. I mean, they ramped up the making of those little vials. It turned out that was going to be the bottleneck. They increased that massively. I mean, there's no doubt that he did as much as he possibly could have to accelerate things. And it worked. But he didn't take much credit for it. And his numbnuts followers, you know, don't like it. Bizarre, right? (laughs) Well, it's science. It's complicated. Oh, yeah, complicated. That that hurts my head when I think about it. I don't want to do that. (laughs) Oh, well, don't, we shouldn't dunk on the poor, those poor people. They have enough problems as it is, right? Oh, well. All righty, Jessica. Well, as always, we had a kind of freewheeling, all-over-the-place conversations, touched on all kinds of interesting things, give our listeners something to think about. And so welcome back to another fun episode at The Jim Rod Show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Jim. That was fun. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.